Hello, Monetization Nation. I'm Nathan Gwilliam, your host. Welcome back to another episode with Jake Jacobs. In the last episode, we discussed three ways we can leverage change in our businesses. Today, we're going to explain why we should learn to embrace change and how we can work with people who are resistant to change. In today's episode, here are some of my key takeaways from today's episode. Number one, organizations likely have to continuously change to be successful. Number two, we should learn to love the people who are resistant to change. As we listen to them, we are probably going to find value that's going to aid us in our change efforts. Number three, when people understand the why, they're usually more than willing to do the what. And number four, focusing on the future benefits makes it easier to accept change. What do you think is the biggest tectonic shift that is transforming the business landscape today? I love this question um, because, again, I'm going to come back and say this is a leverage-based question. It's like, what's the one change that's going to have the biggest impact right, across the business landscape? Well, I believe it has to do with the people coming into the workforce. Right. I mean, there, there have been technology changes there. There have been strategy changes. There have been all kinds of things that have happened. But we have not dealt with millennials and Gen Z's in our organizations before. And what these people expect from an employer, first of all, you've got the gig economy. So people aren't even necessarily going to be employees of your organization. They're going to be working on specific projects for a period of time. And then they're going to move on to another organization. But the, the demands they have for the amount of say that they get in important decisions in an organization is way higher than baby boomers or earlier generations wanted. And they work much more based on purpose than they do based on salary. They're a lot less worried about staying in the same organization and having their 401k stack up at the end of the day than they are about making a contribution to the planet and making a difference in the work that they do. So I think that the biggest tectonic shift is really gonna be who we have working with us, not what the work is or how we're gonna do it. So as I go into organizations and I, I help them leverage tectonic shifts, um, there are some people that, that sometimes don't love change as much as me and, and I, rub them the wrong way by trying to implement change. Um, what ideas or suggestions or advice should someone who is trying to implement change in an organization uh, know so that they can effectively manage those relationships with people who might be a little bit more resistant to change? Let's be honest about it. That, that's most of humanity, right? So we're not talking about a few people on the fringes. So let me give you two things that people can go do immediately. One of them is that we see these people who are resistant. We have a name for them. I mean, we have a lot of names, some we probably shouldn't use on the podcast. Uh, but one that I know is troublemakers. And troublemakers are those people who are resistant to change. They always have one more question. They have a different point of view than everybody in the meeting. So when it comes time to consensus, you always know that this person is going to stick out and, and not get on board. So they cause a lot of mischief in organizations and people isolate them. I had a, I had a situation once 
Nathan, where I went in to meet with an executive team. And when I met with them, everybody agreed that the problem on the executive team was a guy named George. George was in charge of finance and, you know, he was a regular guy. I interviewed George. George told me that he thought everybody thought he was the problem. So I said, okay, well, I went off to design a meeting and we're going to address this issue and have people do some truth telling and difficult conversations. And I come back in two weeks to run this meeting. And I just casually say to somebody, how, how are things going? And they're like, great. You wouldn't believe how well things are going. And I just kind of scratched my head and I thought, well, that's interesting because this is like exuberance. And before they were complaining. And so I said, you know, as a good consultant, I asked a follow-up question and I, and I said to him, I said, well, why, why is it so? Why have things changed so dramatically? And he said, well, we figured out the solution to our problem with George. And I was like, that's great. I mean, we're going to use the whole meeting to deal with that. What's your solution? And they said, we don't invite George to the meetings anymore. So if you don't have the problem in the room, you don't have the problem at all. So I was like, I rolled my eyes and I thought, okay, we got some work to do here. So George is the quintessential troublemaker. I wrote another book called You Don't Have to Do It Alone, How to Involve Others to Get Things Done. And in this book, we talked about troublemakers, had a separate session, a section of the book. And we said, look, troublemaking is in the eye of the beholder. And by that, I mean, if I have you, Nathan, be a troublemaker, I will tend to see you cause trouble. If I have you be a valuable member contributing to our team, I'm going to tend to see what you say and do as valuable contributions to my team. So rather than seeing troublemakers as people getting in the way, if we can see troublemakers as watching our backside, they're paying attention to something that we're not. And in doing so, they're actually allowing us to make better decisions, like risk mitigation, less risky decisions because we understand the whole situation. So one advice I have is learn to love your troublemakers. Put an arm around them, love them, pay attention to them, listen to them, ask them questions, give them time and meetings. All these things that you really have found you never wanted to do, I'm going to ask you to flip that table and say, no, no, let's come around the same side of the table as the troublemaker and try and see the world through their eyes, right? It's hard to do because we've learned to hate these bastards, right, for years, and we found them difficult, and the hair goes up on the back of our necks as soon as they start talking, and you've got to just, like, find the space to take a breath, when they talk, you say, could you say more, which I even talk about in the book is four magic words, whatever you can do to have that person feel safer and to feel more confident so that they'll share what it is that they're thinking, because what they're thinking, some other people in the world are thinking, just not the people on your team right now. Yeah, that, that is profound. So our responsibility as an agent of change is to make sure that we we find the people that might be feeling a little contrary to that change and we need to listen to them. We need to see the world from their perspective and we'll probably are going to get something really valuable from that. That's going to 
aid us and help us be more effective in our, our change efforts. Yeah. This guy, Joe, who had one foot in and one foot out was the definition of a troublemaker. And when he joined, he actually organized a whole group of champions inside the organization that he led to support the change work. So again, when you listen to these people, you integrate their thinking. What you find is there's a lot of wisdom there that you weren't paying attention to because you were too ticked off at these people getting in the way of your progress. Why do organizations even need to change? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that different organizations need to change for different reasons. But what it comes down to at the end of the day is they need to change to be successful. Sometimes they need to change culture so they have better retention and recruitment efforts so people actually want to work there and they get top talent. Sometimes they need to change their strategy because in the marketplace, their competition's eating their lunch and they need to change what their, what their business is in or what they go to market with or their products and services. All of these things are about being more effective or successful in whatever their mission may be. And sometimes they need to change because the skill sets need to change. So there needs to be development of people around new technologies or new work processes. And sometimes they need to change because the customer demands are different. And what our customer wanted from us 10 years ago is no longer what our customer wants from us. And so if we keep delivering what they asked for 10 years ago, we'll end up calling them ex-customers right? And somebody else will take them on that's listening to them today. So I think there's lots of different reasons. And, and I, I just, I have not found an organization that's changing for change's sake. I have found organizations where there are people in them who believe there's change for change's sake. But the reason for that is because leaders have not done a good enough job explaining why these changes are so critical. Because when people understand the why, they're more than willing to do the what. So I've heard two really good strategies for helping to get resistant people on board with our change efforts. I've, I've heard explaining the why, and I've, I've heard uh, listening, right? Trying to see the world from their perspective. What other strategies do you have for us about, about how we can get resistant people on board with our change efforts? Here's another one. One of the um, levers in the book deals with the problem that's called what's in it for me. What's in it for me gets even because my clients, maybe you, your organizations love acronyms. They call it WIFM, right? Which is what's in it for me. So everything becomes an acronym. Well, what's in it for me? Most people look at that and they think that person's being selfish. Right, they're looking out for number one, and that that's what they care about. They don't care about the whole organization. If they cared about everybody, they cared about the customer, they would make this change. They're just worried about themselves. Well, my belief, I have a different belief. And like I said, this book is filled with what I call uncommon wisdom. So the common wisdom is get with the program, like stop being selfish. But I think that's a healthy dynamic that humans look out for themselves and they want to have a payoff for them to do something. I think that's just basic human nature. It's the way we're all built. We're wired that way. So rather than making those people wrong, what we need to do is develop a future that people will want to call their own. 
And that's another lever. So what happens is that when you develop a future that people want to call their own, this what's in it for me issue disappears. Because I don't need to worry about what's in it for me anymore. If I've developed a future and been part of developing a future that I want to call my own, I see myself in that future. I'm excited to become part of that future. I'm energized to try and help create that future. So rather than dealing with this as a problem at the individual level, what we do is we deal with it as a vision at the collective level. So it's an entirely different way of looking at the situation. And again, what I have found is that focusing on what you want is much more motivating than focusing on what you don't want. And you create a lot more issues, anxiety, stress, all these things by trying to force somebody to say, look, don't worry about yourself. Let's worry about the whole company. And, you know, if you're being selfish about this, well, that, that's not very empowering. But it's very empowering to be able to say, let's create an exciting future where you see yourself, changes the conversation. And in my experience, it is 100% foolproof. Everybody wants to be part of creating an exciting future. And so shifting that conversation is the same as shifting those people. You just don't have to go after anybody and tell them they're wrong. Okay, so what you're saying is instead of fighting against the what's in it for me, the, the reality of our business, regardless of whatever we do, people are going to be making their decisions based on what's in it for them. So instead of fighting against it or, or being offended or upset by it, we just kind of need to lean into it. And we need to use that to our advantage and and help them see what's in it for them from the change and build changes that really help create a better world for them. Yeah, it's all about the future. And if you can focus on the future, again, it gives people the freedom. It's an invitation to be creative and innovative and engaged because that at the end of the day, who doesn't want to be part of creating their own future, right? But that's the difference between complaining at the individual level and creating at the collective level. Thank you so much, Jake, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. To learn more about or connect with Jake, you can find him on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can visit his website, jakejacobsconsulting.com, and you can check out his books such as Leveraging Change on Amazon. And there's links to each of these sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get my free book about passion marketing and learn how you can become a priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me today, and I wish you success in your change efforts. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.